Welcome back to another episode of the Evidence-Based Education Podcast. This time round, we bring you a keynote entitled The Future of Assessment, delivered by Tim Oates, Group Director of Assessment Research and Development at our partner organisation, Cambridge Assessment. We hope you find it useful, and if you do, don't forget to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or in your usual podcast place. So anyway, I'm going to hand over to, to Tim. Uh, Tim Oates is, and uh, I, there are lots of words in your title, um, including Group Director Assessment Research and, and various other things, but yeah. Group Director um, of Assessment Research Development. That's it. Yes, that's it. Proper job. Um, at Cambridge Assessment, yeah. um, and somebody whose work um, influenced uh, the design of, um, of the Assessment Academy project, um, but also Cambridge Assessment have um, supported us in the development um, of, um, uh, of Assessment Academy, particularly um, the online um, offering which is coming in the autumn. So I shall hand over now to Tim to hear about the future of assessment. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Thank you very much indeed. And, and yes, we've been extremely pleased to be able to support Assessment Academy. Um, Rob dropped me an email and said, you, you, you've got to look at these guys and you've got to support the work they're doing. And he was right. So we did. Um, and, and why it's great is because you're here tonight. Um, you know, you're giving up a lot of time, um, personal time, to find out about something which is, which is esoteric and demanding. I had a very, very bad period when I, I tried to get other disciplines interested in assessment. And I, I found out people like Julian Legrand and um, other people at, at the LSE, um, Anthony, Tony Giddens, you know, the famous sociologist, I wanted them to, to talk about their perspectives of the, of the function of assessment and qualifications in social and economic systems. And they just said, you've got to be kidding. You know, it was really intimidating for them. They were leading experts. They didn't feel that they could talk about it. I said, you don't need to know about it. You just need to talk about what you think about it. And they wouldn't. Very, very interesting. This was about 15 years ago. I think things are changing a bit, and we've, we've realized, perhaps as a society, that many more people need to understand about assessment. It is so important. You know, the credentialization that occurs through qualifications, the impact of assessment. So who the hell am I? Well, I run a, a, about a 30-person research group at Cambridge Assessment. That's an organization of about 2,500 people, which is a non-teaching department of Cambridge University, and we offer assessment and, and, and I'll end on, edu and educational services, to about 170 countries. And that's, that gives us a very privileged insight, actually. I, I mean, I, I constantly am very privileged to be able to go into classrooms around, around the world and, and to talk to colleagues, teachers and educationalists and assessment experts around the room, ar around the world, rather, and, and actually examine the differences, the tensions, the different different processes, the different locations of assessment in different nations, and we're increasingly drawing on those transnational perspectives to reflect on the way in which assessment operates in our own system. We also have, I also manage the archive, more on that in a moment. Why the hell would you be interested in an archive? You know, it's got, only got exam questions in it, you know, going back to the 1890s, not very much interesting. Um, and um, I run the Cambridge Assessment Network, which is, in a sense, a parallel or sister organisation to Assessment Academy. Again, very committed to the professional development of institutions and individuals in terms of their knowledge about assessment. So that's the contextual stuff. That's some interesting stuff. So Alex. I mean, I talk about Alex a lot. He's currently my 11-year-old son. 
Um, he kicked a hole in the door recently in school. This is very unlike him. And um, he's, he'd been through a very low-stakes assessment. So um, they do reasonably regular, not regular enough, assessments. Um, and uh, they're marked by other kids. And this other kid had deliberately, we think, changed the scoring on Alex's responses. And that wasn't low stakes at all to Alex. In fact, it made him absolutely incandescent. He was very, very upset. He gets very concerned if his identity is being constructed by others in an inappropriate fashion. And the test was a way in which he knew full well that teachers would construct their view of him through that test. And uh, he, he got into a very, very difficult, very tense situation with this other child. And as a result, he was excluded from the classroom. He thought it was unjust. And on the way, he kicked the door. That makes us reflect about high stakes, doesn't it, and low stakes? And, and Rob often talks about it's not the form of assessment, although you, if you're deciding on what you want to do, you need to optimize the structural form of it, that's for sure. But you can use the outcomes of different things for different purposes. And perhaps it's in the eye of the beholder very much. Who are the beholders? Who is affected by the outcomes? To be told that you're no good at a language early on because of low-stakes formative assessment is pretty high stakes if you make the decision not to pursue that language, and so on and so on. So I think we've got to be very cautious about these kind of labels. I do say in many of the presentations I make that we ha everybody talks about us being the most assessed system in the world, and they're completely wrong. I mean, they really are wrong. We are not the most assessed system in the world. The assessment weighs heavily upon us because of how we use it, and I argue for much more assessment of an entirely different kind, the sort that we were discussing prior to this in terms of the sort of formative assessment that you've got going in your school, often electronically supported. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, I really care about teachers. I mean, I really do. I mean, I, I just think, you know, we're getting it so badly wrong. We try and decrease the cognitive load of people like medics and pilots. I mean, I don't want a bloody pilot dealing with a crosswind worrying about whether they've got enough sandwiches for the return journey. But we constantly say that teachers have to be concerned for behaviour, for resource management, for the, the purchasing of textbooks or, or other resources, for developing their own learning materials and not using nationally available materials, um, to be concerned about cross-cutting themes, about the uh, emotional development of it. I mean, you get the idea. We're loading on functions onto teachers, not stripping them away. No wonder it's difficult. No wonder we've got the migration from the profession. And, and Rob and I, at the time, were members... Uh, they threw me off because I was very difficult. Uh, the, um, uh, Rob and I were members of the Standards Advisory Committee uh, group for uh, Ofqual. And, and if you remember, we were going to adopt a policy in this country of bidding for GCSEs. So OCR, which is one of the awarding, three awarding bodies that we have, would have put in bids for GCSEs. We would say, we will run science or physics. We will run, we will run a suite of languages or English, English lit. It was going to be a bun fight in terms of submissions. And, and there was one afternoon where I did a great deal of really hard thinking about something and took the proposal to Simon Liebes, our chief executive, and he said, that's so radical and I, un I think the evidence is compelling and we'll do it. And I said, it'll, it'll unleash a world of, of stuff on us. And he said, yep, but it's right. 
So we went away and developed it. And we developed it in, in an assessment package for science. And it, it was based on the notion that there should be no teacher-based assessment of science which contributed to the grade in a GCSE. And when the bidding process was removed from policy and it was back to normal service, even though we'd spent millions of pounds developing these specifications, and I, un I, I unveiled this model to the Standards Advisory Group, it caused mayhem. I mean, I, they were people, there were people getting very, very angry. You can't do that. It will destroy practical work in, in science, in schools. Now, why did, we, why did we think it was a good idea? One of the principal reasons we thought it was a good idea was the level of professional contradiction which had been placed upon teachers in respect of the assessment of practical work in respect of GCSE. The data told a story. It was no longer a dependable assessment, all crashing up at the top end. Teachers are being told by their heads, you've got to make sure everybody gets full marks in the practical. Now that tells us that people had not considered the professional contradictions that were existing in respect of the role of the teacher as somebody obliged to get the maximum scores and operating as the independent objective assessor of a child's performance, acting as an external agent of an awarding body. Now, if you have got those kind of professional contradictions playing out in medicine, in aviation, God forbid, because difficult choices result. And people, will, in, in face with those kind of contradictions, they will make the wrong decisions. So that's why we removed it. We removed it not because we thought, you know, that it was the best form of assessment ever in any circumstance of science practical. But we drove it particularly because of our concern for the professional roles of teachers. And I think that's quite interesting. So, so I forced it on you. The future of assessment. So I love the news quiz. Um, every Friday evening. I, I stopped the car and listened to it often on the way home. And Hugo Rifkin was hilarious after the election because he said, I've been up since Wednesday night. I'm in the same clothes. Um, and, you know, don't listen to me. I'm just a bloody political journalist. I don't know anything anymore. You know, I may as well just predict things by looking at chicken entrails. So how do we tell the future? How do we know what the future is? Now, if I drop that, I'll know damn sure what that it'll drop at, is it 8.6 metres per second squared? I think it is. And it will carry on doing that, irrespective of how I feel about it, whether I'm angry about gravity, whether I enjoy it, or whatever, whatever my emotional state. But how about this? And be prepared to be pretty upset about what I'm going to say. Listen to the reasoning, because this is sophisticated philosophy of science related to the distinction between natural science, the, the, the physics of things, and social science. I'm now a 19th century educator, and I think that women are more stupid than men. That's what I think. And I've got a whole series of assessments that I've used, and, and because I've been assessing women at the age of 20, and they are more stupid on those tests, they don't deserve to go to school. Isn't that interesting? So my theory actually affects something objective, which is the intelligence of women. Why do they, why do they have a difference on those tests? Because I've denied them access to education 
on the basis of my theory. You see, theory in the social world is constitutive of phenomena in a way in which it's not in the natural world. So what I say tonight could affect the future of assessment. What you take away as beliefs from this evening could change what you do in schools and mean that the future plays out in a different way. So absolutely I'm Hugo Rifkind. Who bloody knows? But what I do know is it will be affected by what you think and do because that's the social domain, not the natural domain. It's not gravity, it's your beliefs about children. It's your belief about others, the others around you, and your beliefs about yourself. So that's the start. Nice light start. So, so what about the future of assessment? Go on, Nate, I mean, this is what everybody says. They, uh, I, I, I usually ask the question, what do you think it's about? Everybody goes, nah, 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 iPads in schools, nah, nah, on, on screen. No, it's not. But everybody says it is. But technological development is only a tiny, tiny part of well-evidenced, coherent development of assessment. A tiny part. Thank God we saw the principles. I mean, of course these things are going to affect... This has got a pointer, hasn't it? Yeah. Of course these things are going to affect stuff. On-screen marking, we've got now remote standardization and moderation. We can now monitor markers in, in, in real time and stop them if they're marking outside tolerance. It doesn't make them very happy. They no longer come together to discuss and, and form an identity as a member of a professional community in the way in which they did. Maybe that's a big downside. But we sure as hell can monitor them in real time, and it's leading to much more accurate marking. Interesting. Marker monitoring. On-screen assessment. Automated marking. Hmm. Maybe, you know, automated marking of essays. Well, yeah, then they have to be typed, not written, because we can't, at the moment, interpret human writing yet. Maybe we can although a lot of the promises are not coming true. Interesting, again, so that will change, hmm, that will change what we think kids should do. Maybe they ought to type things rather than write things and then lose the fine motor control which they need to be able to do at seven in order to control infantile movement, which affects whether they can concentrate in primary school. Future? Interesting. Okay, so e-portfolios. Yeah, I mean, why rely on a bad, hot day's work as opposed to over a two-hour period than gathering evidence over a long period of time? the 26th child in the math set you were talking about. Real, is that more dependable? Or is it in Germany, so many kids are fed up with the fact that, that the evidence is collected on the basis of teacher assessment because they know their relationship with the teacher affects the nature of those comments. Uh, item banking, that's very good. I love that and I'll come back to it. Curation of all our questions. The archive is becoming important because it's full of questions and questions are really important. Questions, questions, questions. What is the nature of the question you ask that child on a Monday morning to sort out what they did get from that homework on tectonic plates? Um, On-demand testing. And I'll just jump to the chase. I mean, I came across a question which was nearly 400 years old recently and was re is really, really interesting. I'll come back to that. On-demand testing, versioning, time zones. Now, with social media, our kids in Singapore just come out of the exam and, and, and send the exam questions around the world. Previously, they didn't do that. So the kids in Mauritius didn't know what the questions are. Now they do. So we've had to have three versions of the test. That means, do they equate? How do we equate? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Versioning, very complex, very demanding. Adaptive testing, lots of promise. Um, you probably, you know about adaptive testing? You know the idea? Well, anyway, you, you, the, the test changes as you go through it. It can be on paper, but typically it's better done on, on uh, on, on screen and it's done often so quickly you can slip in, it's unfeasible to the person being measured. So you can slip in loads of new items for live pre-testing, which is really handy. 
Ethical? Yes, I think so. Uh, rapid feedback? Interesting paper recently which says that kids uh, would rather have feedback from formative tests from a machine than from a teacher because they're not revealing what it is that they don't know. Very, very interesting. Um, results analysis with us. We're doing huge amounts on the results now that we never did before, all thanks to technology. Great test evaluation development because of technology. Um, nice experimental work on rank ordering. All can be done in an on-screen marking environment very readily instead of all these vast amounts of photocopying. Very good. Daisy's very keen on this. Theory laid down in the 1930s. Lots of work done on us in Cambridge. Comparative judgment, very good. And lots of lovely stuff on formative assessment environments. Yes, that's all being done by technology. Great. And then you think of the big technology companies. You talk to them, oh yeah, we've got this fantastic online assessment platform. Who is putting the content in? Are they assessment experts? In many cases, no. Hmm. That might not be good in terms of the future. Just as children are losing certain things, maybe bad, good-looking systems are not good in terms of assessment. So no, it's still about learners, it's still about users, the purpose that Rob emphasised, the content of learning, the accuracy and fairness, still are critical, the access to it. You know, Helena Badsey's work, I mean, it's very interesting. We assume all sorts of skills in terms of using technology, which are often not taught at school. We assume they are acquired. The thing is, they're differentially acquired across different social groups. So they're another means by which inequities can, can, can creep in. Reporting an impact. We need to understand all of these things when we say adaptive assessment is good. Well, on what platform, by who, in what settings, used in what way, what are the outcomes, how are the outcomes being interpreted? And so that's why we use an elaborated consequentialist model. What's the impact? What's happening? And Paul Newton would say, that's wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. It's too extended. We say, we don't care. We know about your analysis, Paul, but it's just too important to let go consideration of the impact of assessment. And we think if we, form an if we design an assessment, it is an obligation on us to tell, it, to tell people how we think it should be used and the uses which are probably inappropriate. That's why we in Cambridge pulled out of Key Stage 2 assessment. We didn't like how they were being used in terms of accountability. And I think it's vital to work upwards from the construct. And it's great that you, know, you use the term construct in your presentation. And I'm glad to see it's, it's entering the common lexicon. It appears in the educational press now. The, it, it didn't. It just didn't five years ago. That's really, really good. So people are understanding the idea of construct. I gather evidence on something about which I form a judgment. And the judgment is not the same as the thing which I'm measuring. It's a view of the thing which I'm measuring. It's a theory about something. It's a theory about somebody's attainment. In that sense, it's a construct. And so evidence on key constructs is really important. I mean, I love all this stuff about 21st century skills. It's complete nonsense. I mean, most of them aren't 21st century, and most of them aren't skills. Since when was working with others 21st century? Since when was critical thinking 21st century? And since when was critical thinking a skill? So, you know, it's just nonsense. And... and Eren Kasuto did a brilliant review on our website about this, uh, looking at all of the frameworks around the world. It's snake oil. And you need to have decent evidence about what the key constructs are. So all this stuff, and, and indeed, don't listen to what employers say they want. Really don't, well, listen to it, but don't believe it. Look at the returns data. Look at what they're prepared to pay for, because that's really telling. Okay, look at the wage differentials in a company in terms of the background of the people, not, not what the employers say 
they recruit for, and that we do. So we think you need to, in the future, we need to continue to attend to the purposes of assessment. We need to continue to attend to all the things which, frankly, you know, this course has focused on, and it's critical. I mean, I do think we need to add utility and cost. I mean, I can make GCSE incredibly reliable. It would be 40 hours long. It would be really, really expensive. Don't let anybody believe otherwise. Our examinations are unbelievably cheap. I mean, they represent a very low proportion of the total spend on, on, on education, and yet they are a vital quality assurance mechanism. They structure so many aspects of what we do. That's why they've got to be good but they're very, very cheap. So what is a construct? I mean, there we go, here's a load. Um, you know, can multiply two three-digit numbers. Um, understands and invented with metaphor. But reading a wide range of books for pleasure. I mean, I've talked about this a lot. Reading, is somebody reading or scanning? Is it a wide range of things? Are they books or graphic novels? And are they enjoying it? We can measure all of those things. We can dispute whether that is a unitary construct or not. Personally, I think it is. I think it's a very desirable outcome. Why is it a desirable outcome? Because it has explanatory and causal and predictive power, something very important in social science. People reading a wide range of books for pleasure do much better than those who aren't, who don't. That's what we know from the big longitudinal studies. We don't know whether that's the cause of them doing well or a sign of them doing well, but it's certainly worth measuring, even if we're confused about which way around it is in terms of causation. You know, this is quite useful. It was quite useful when Jamie had that terrible climbing disaster in Chamonix and was, was lifted off in a very, very interesting way by the gendarmerie uh, pilot in, from Chamonix. You know, if, you, if they haven't converted successfully to a helicopter, it would be a bit of a disaster. This is interesting. Now, manifesting externalizing behavior. If children think that things just happen to them, that they have no control, they're not going to do very well in life. It is seen as a general duty of schools that children do not manifest externalizing behavior, that they are empowered individuals when they pass outwards from the portals of the school. It is measured, and very tightly, in the longitudinal studies, John, Bunner, John Bunner's work, in terms of the 1958 cohort study, the 70 cohort study, and the 2000 millennium cohort study. And it's shown very well that if you manifest externalizing behavior, you have very bad educational life, health, and other outcomes. And it's measurable. And we see it as a general good of schooling, and we don't measure it in individual kids. Interesting. Uh, do you measure it in any of your stuff? Hmm, interesting. So, you know, I've, I've said about this. I mean, just, you know, snake oil. Read that. It's good. Um, you, ancient, ubiquitous, and enigmatic. Um, it's a good title. Well done, Arinka. Um, we put all of the stuff I'm talking about in the Cambridge approach. So we don't have the APA standards. So the APA standards for assessment in America, it's really thick and not very widely read. It's occasionally used as a reference document. We wanted something much thinner, which was widely read, and so it's on our website. And this describes all of the things which I'm talking about tonight. So we, we, we try and do what we say, e even though it's challenging. So, you know, we do look at the different types of items, and we think we can categorize things pretty simply, actually, but using a course categorization. Traditional essay questions, short answers, and objective response items. Um, multiple choice items, coursework and teacher assessment, and performance assessment. And that's it. And we think they cluster um, under these three models. Oop, typo there, sorry. Banked items, where you, where you have things, you administer them, you find out what they're like, then you put them in the bank, and then you reuse them and accumulate data on them, trying not to expose them to destroy security. 
um, and you accumulate data on them, and you know how they behave, and you reuse them, and you have enough to reuse them in such a way that somebody won't know that a particular question is coming up. That's a very good model. Awarding-based assessment, GCSE, you have no idea how the questions are going to perform. You put them all in because you think they're good ones, you see how they perform, and you try and align the standards year on year, and you need an award to do that. So you need to review it and then reward it through a grade. And then performance-based assessment, you gather evidence using a set of standards. You evaluate the evidence. So there we are, there's a bit more discussion. And the interesting thing is, I don't think there are many types of assessment. There are many refinements and many different uses, but there aren't many types, actually. And that's quite handy, because you can, you can think quite, quite clearly and consciously when you're thinking about your school assessment policy, about the type of assessment. That's actually quite an easy one. It's not as bewildering as it might seem. There's banked items, awarding-based assessments, and performance-based assessment. That's good, and it's, and it's simple. Now, we also have something called the integrated model, which is what you need to go through if you're an assessment body and you want to design an assessment. So a clear statement of purpose, all of these things, I'm not going to go through them. There are clear documentation elements of the administration, including provision of clear service standards. My worry is that a lot of the people providing these new technological solutions don't go through that. They haven't got anything like that. They've just got a good platform, and they've whacked loads of stuff into it. Now, it's not true of some of them, like DQ, Diagnostic Questions. Very interesting platform. But we need to take all of the criteria that you've begun to get an insight into, we need to bring all of those to bear whenever you think about using something. And, you know, we've, we've got all of these things to think about. Learners, what's their prior attainment? What's their concurrent attainment? Patterns between the attainment in different examinations and tests. That tells us about people and it tells us about our tests. We want to know about the users. You know, we want to find out about, we want to find out about HE. You, you do assessments. Are you sure you know everything about how parents are interpreting those things and what they're saying to their, you, the kids at home and what they're getting them to do? It affects the content of learning, the accuracy and fairness of assessment, access to assessment, reporting and impact. It's all very well saying, Yes, we've all now got all our homework assignments online. In New York, kids from low-income backgrounds say the, the online space is where we do our social stuff. It's not where we do learning. So again, we, we make assumptions, but maybe inequities can creep in very easily. Um, about 10 more minutes? Yeah? Okay. Right, so these become critical. And in thinking about it's all about technology, well, maybe technology helps these, but it doesn't constitute them. We've got to set standards, and we've got to see whether our kids are learning in this, as much of the most important stuff as other nations are. And I'm afraid the bad news is, when we did the review work prior to the 2010 National Curriculum Reviews, other nations have, you know, have gone way above us and way in front of us. You know, Seven-year-olds in mathematics in Hong Kong and Shanghai it's not that they hate what they're doing, these kids. It's not that they're all oppressed by terrible stress. And it's, it's really, it, this international benchmarking is interesting. Standards maintenance, making sure that it's fair year on year, very important. And, and, and Rob and I have talked a lot about reference tests and whether they will work. The government is hanging a great deal of, of emphasis on reference tests as a way of solving the problems of international benchmarking and maintaining standards over time. Rob and I are a bit more sceptical about whether it will work. Uh, Ofqual, you know, have, have got it going, and it's going to be interesting. And I think they've got an open mind about it. 
And then there's this big discussion about stats versus judgment. And Daisy's book is very interesting in, in terms of comparative judgment and whether we, we don't need to mark everything, we just need to say this is better than that in relationship to children's work and get it onto a nice scale and then compare it with work from previous years and then therefore we can link standards and do the standards maintenance bit as well as through judgment as well as through statistics. I mean, all good stuff and we do it and we maintain a very open mind about it. I think there's going to be a lot of future in that. Judgment should not be renegated to the, relegated to the bin of not reliable. We need to think about how we can structure human judgment and really utilise it. Um, challenges, lots of technology and assessment, and, I've hint, and I, I, I think adaptive testing is very exciting, but you can see how much I think we need to treat it critically. Um, there's, you know, basically, uses. And, and, and politicians do want to get their hands on assessment data. I mean, PISA does rule the roost around the world. It's powerful stuff and a tendency to use qualifications for everything, including changing stuff. You know, if, if, a, if a minister wants to change schooling, they don't think about changing schooling, they think about changing the qualifications so that it will change schooling. You know, the washback effect from assessment, a really big thing. Social demands for transparency and accountability and trust, but, you know, we've not seen a dramatic increase in trust with the rise of accountability. But we need trust in our social institutions. I think it's really, really important that most secondary schools for years didn't trust the results coming up from primary schools. That's really bad for our system. You know, dependability in, in the evidence, really critical. And Bill Schmidt's work shows that if there's a lack of trust between primary and secondary schools around in a, in a national system, you haven't got a high-performing system. Increase in regulation. Ofqual, I mean, that, that's, that's just increased dramatically. I mean, I think some of the stuff that Ofqual does is very good. I think some of the stuff is very bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's led right to, to really weird questions and examinations because we have assessment grids. We have to have, have questions that are not only about conservation of mass but about kids' ability to handle data. Now, the moment you've got both of those things going on in an item, you're all over the place in terms of measurement. You know, for two marks. What? It's not good. So we've got to watch that. We've got to watch where the control is and whether the people who are in control saying these things know what they need to know about assessment. Developments and, and, and aspirations, I mean, everybody is aspiring. Interesting, in Hong Kong, we, everybody's rank ordered. All the kids are rank ordered. I mean, literally, every kid in Hong Kong knows where they are in the rank order of Hong Kong kids. Isn't that terrible? That's what education, European educationists think. No, no, Hong Kong people don't think so because all the kids are trying to climb over each other. So everybody gets better. Interesting. I mean, that's quite challenging. So we ought to be open to what kind of aspirations we've got and how we can achieve it, and all of the threats from international development and economic changes. Um, you know, no immigration, apart from the people we want. Um, and they'll be high qualified, you know, and competing with people. So it's, that's interesting. And the changing role of assessment agencies. We go in and offer examination services around the world, but increasingly they're saying, well, you're doing the qualifications, and helping us to understand about the role of assessment, can you also help us with the curriculum? Can you also help us with the role of formative assessment? And, and that's quite challenging, because we're an assessment agency. So is it right that we should do curriculum stuff? Well, I'm just rec recruiting more curriculum specialists to make sure we do it well. So this is what I think will happen in future. So final slides. I think we will see more seamless integration of assessment and learning. And I think I want more assessment of the right kind. You know, Lucy Crehan, Cleverlands, 120 questions asked by a Chinese 
teacher in a 35-minute lesson in order to stimulate learning and get feedback as to where the kids are, pulling the five kids, different kids in every lesson, that haven't quite got it at the end and giving them immediate intervention and support so they never fall so far behind that they identify themselves as being bad at mathematics. Very interesting. All based on questions, all based on assessment. Establishing high-quality forms of assessment critical, using formative assessment for summative purposes. I think that's very challenging. And we've got to look at how we do that and do it well. Managing the functions of qualifications, because I don't think we attend to the use of them particularly well. There will be a growth of national regulation. God, we've seen it here, and we're going to see it around the world. Um, the structure of international markets in assessment. I mean, ACER. Have you heard of ACER? They're big. They're big in assessment. They come from Australia. They're very big in in South Africa. They're re they're, so these ETS, American. You know, they tried to run the national tests and screwed it up in England. So it's an international market. It's monetized. If something's important, you know, ca advanced capitalism monetizes it. And assessment's important. So expect it to be monetized. Expect people to fight over it. Harnessing the benefits of competitive arrangements therefore stem from that. If it's going to be marketized, the benefits of that market have to be public goods. Goods for the individual, the individual child, the individual parent, goods for the economy and goods for society. And endless demand for certification? Yeah, there is. I mean, we have seen throughout the economic depression at Cambridge increased demand for assessment, not decreased. You know, in, when times are good, people want more qualifications. And when times are bad, people want more qualifications. And they just see themselves as able to compete. The danger is assessing everything which moves. You know, working with others, critical thinking, externalizing behavior, <clears throat> you know, then, then education becomes assessment. So we do this. I mean, we influence thinking on assessment through all the radical ideas I've been talking about, some of which you probably won't have liked. We support operations around the world. We contribute to fundamental knowledge. This is my research group, and we increase professionalism assessment. But we also want to improve public confidence in assessment. So yes, it's about you understanding more about assessment, but it's also parents and children and, and employers and, and everyone in society. So even though one of the chief executives didn't like it, I had a long conversation on, with a journalist on the train coming up about exam errors. You know, for public trust, we need to be clear about how and why they occur and what we do about them. And I love this. This is good. Okay, so this is a, this is a great, this, this could be really bad, this. But it's really good, and I'll explain why. D does anybody use Isaac Physics? Anybody use Isaac Physics? Okay, it's brilliant. It's Cambridge, it's from our archive, and it's done by two leading physicists, um, Dr. Mark Warner and Dr. Professor Mark Warner and Dr. Lisa Jardine Wright. Cavendish Laboratory. There are no slouches when it comes to low-density physics and cosmology. What they've done is they've got postdoctoral students to go through our archive back to 1897. Now, I regret that we don't go back before that, because I asked a Chinese educator, hmm, that's a really interesting question. When was that first used in Chinese mathematics education? And they said, hmm, 1601. Okay, why? It's a bloody good question. And it always stimulates the kids. And so, so forgive me, I'll just spend 15, 20 seconds doing something I wasn't going to do. But Robin Miller, just down the road in York. So he's, he, he tries to find brilliant questions. So he, he take, he's organized this fantastic activity for primary school kids. Very good for secondary, some secondary school kids too. Pair of digital scales, okay, onto which you put two beakers, two, two glass beakers, one with water in it, one with sugar in it. 
Okay? And you ask the kids, what will happen to the weight when you put the sugar in the water? Okay? And it's phenomenal what the kids say. It'll get lighter because you put the sugar in the water and the water holds the sugar up. Okay? It gets lighter because the sugar disappears. It gets heavier because you put the, water, the sugar in the water. Okay? Now, what he's discovered is this is a fantastic activity which you can do for year after year after year after year. The teacher may get bored, but the kids won't because they're new kids every year. And it reveals, it reveals, instantly reveals misconceptions about something fundamental, which is a foundational construct in relationship to later learning. And it's a brilliant question. So Lisa Jardine Wright went through, the postdoctoral students and Lisa and Mark went through all of our physics questions, going way, way back, advanced level, and found that the questions were harder in the 1980s and 1970s. Why? Because, to make it, to, because we realized that some kids hadn't done very well, we gave them a diagram. The next year we realized that some kids hadn't done very well, so we broke it down a bit. The next year we realized that some kids hadn't done very well, so we gave them the formula. And if you do that year on year on year on year, 10 years later, you've made the examination really easy. We found you'd not only strip the maths out of physics, but you'd actually strip the physics out of physics. Because drawing that diagram, theorizing a physical structure, is fundamental. That's bad news. Our physics examinations have got dead easy. And people say, oh, it's because loads of, very few people took physics then, and they all got, didn't have to get many marks to get a high grade. Apart from the fact that twice the number of people took A-level physics then, twice the number, not the percentage, the number of people, and so much bigger in terms of the percentage of the cohort. And I've looked at the chief examiner's report. They had to get high marks to get a decent grade. They just knew a lot of physics. Now, that's the newspaper headline which says, physics has gone to the dogs. But that's not the newspaper story. This is the newspaper story. We put them online, and we provided hints. And we went from naught to over 100,000 hits per day on this website by students and by teachers. That's the good news story. Society wants the hard questions. This one, by the way, is from 1922. And the giveaway is a steam train. Okay? But it's a brilliant question. So if we're worried about the security of questions, what we need to do is to flood the world with good questions. And then no kid will know what question will come up on a particular occasion in a particular exam. So the only incentive upon the teachers and the kids is to know a lot of physics. So to finish, we can enhance assessment by the things that you learnt on the course. We can enhance assessment by you taking those out and doing good things. Of course deploying technology, but only technology selected by virtue of the principles of measurement. We can improve equity, attainment, enjoyment. In Singapore, they're good at maths, the equity is great, and they love maths. In Japan, they hate it, and they're good at it, and they're not very confident in it. So do the right things, and they can enjoy it. And progression, and labor market mobility. And there, from that, we can get benefits to individuals, society, and the economy. So thank you very much indeed. This talk was given by Tim Oates. Group Director of Assessment Research and Development at Cambridge Assessment. Cambridge Assessment is our partner organisation, working on the development of our Assessment Lead programme, particularly in its online format. 
Our first ever cohort of assessment leads were trained in the northeast of England throughout 2016-17. And Tim came up to provide this insightful keynote at their graduation event in June 2017. For more information about our Assessment Academy, head to www.assessmentacademy.co.uk. And to keep up to date with our latest news, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes to receive new episodes straight to your device. Follow us on Twitter at Evidence in Edu, or find our website at www.evidencebased.education.